0: with the pen lands on i don't care hands on what's the beef the coolly high coachies highpot tech plays i drape on poetic landscapes and shapes
1: all right we're back once again folks
0: bonjour so long, Man what's up and welcome back to episode 81 of how you livin'
1: Live in greenwood from the million dollar studios atop the one and only chaz tower
0: And we always start with a simple question where I go, how you living, Chaz? You know what? To be honest with you, I'm a little bit fucked up right now. And I don't mean, like, fucked up off of drugs or anything like that. I was doing research for the show... And I saw this commercial for this limited edition tea that says, uh, um, we stand for the flag, we kneel for the cross. And I was just like, oh, hell no. And and I sat through it and watched the entire video, which was basically like this shit on the libtards. And I was just like, this is a real video. Like someone spent their hard time, you know, mapping it out shot for shot. Um, they actually took the time to make sure that they would get uh, – a limited edition t-shirt out, and and they're just like, yeah, no, we're here to trigger the libs. And I was just like, I- I'm not here for this.
1: <laughs> wow, and that's got you going off the first of the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I'm sorry that you feel away. That's not a fun uh, ad. Uh, I'm also living pretty well. Uh, and here at How You Live in, we typically... Start with an original segment. There are so there are four thousand and six segments now. No, <laughs>
0: uh,
1: in our eighty previous episodes, <laughs> this is episode eighty-one.
0: Eighty-one.
1: But before we get to episode eighty-one, the original segment callbacks. callbacks. Yes, sir. All right, and uh, to start it off, um, so this uh, callback about the tea feels like uh, a callback to our kneeling conversation
0: a a little bit it's just it it just got me in a way and i realized that like i wanted to articulate that I i felt like the word like there's two things right we get cancel culture wrong like Americans do. Cancel culture is usually what happens when especially in leftist and progressive spaces where you find out something questionable about a person and then you think they need to not be regarded as an ally to your cause anymore. All right, and and I think that's one thing that does happen a lot in those spaces which makes coalition building on the left somewhat difficult to some certain degree uh i haven't looked any into too much but i've seen that as criticisms from people in the left um about like you know gatekeeping and kind of having the leftist equivalent to the paper brown test or whatever that uh black people used to do like you have to be at least this dark to get in or something right so so yeah and and it kind of went into that and and it was the idea that i don't think you need to cancel the nfl or cancel jay-z but feel free to boycott it if you don't agree with them and and that that is the distinction that i was like canceling doesn't sound right when it comes to that no we're supposed to boycott it right and that's why people on the internets were upset with some people because black people overall don't seem to be boycotting the nfl over colin kaepernick like two odd some years later
1: right yeah and i've yeah and i've seen some people come out about that about how they're into football and they see it as there is some hypocrisy in what people say on Twitter versus what mm-hmm. they do on Sunday yeah and uh, and as somebody who likes watching the NFL and I support it as like a system I'm a Seahawk fan uh, you know I, I kind of assume it's okay to like it and also in your mind know that certain parts of it have difficulty giving uh, speech to certain people and to allow messages to be certain ways. And Mm -hmm. at this point, trying in their best to remove politics from football when, you know, ultimately we all know as like a practice, you can't remove politics from anything. No, it's part of life. And so, um, you know, there's, there's difficulty in seeing that. And then I'm seeing kind of my argument has always been like how the NBA's works and they're kind of going through some um shit right now with mm. the the speech about China. And Oh, I didn't hear about this. And so yeah, there uh a, a Houston Rockets owner um basically tweeted about um how the Hong Kong revolution or, you know, uh protests need to stand up and keep going and oh, okay. And I guess China and NBA have like a uh kind of a working relationship
0: oh oh yeah
1: and and in fact this week in in at the same time as that tweet came out uh china a couple of their teams are over here playing games in the preseason against nba teams
0: oh wow okay
1: yeah and so um it's an interesting situation where you know the tweet supports something that i mean ultimately i would feel like this show and i you know also uh uh, you know, support Hong Kong and the protests because w- we know what they're standing up against.
0: Oh, 100%.
1: And, you know, I guess, you know, I mean, as China now is like a business leader to some degree, um, that's been entered into their corporate message as well is, you know, like things like Taiwan and things like Hong Kong um, need to be swept under the rug and there's only one way to think of it and that's China. Mm-hmm. So, uh, different argument being made where now it's kind of always been the more open league um, facing some uh, animosity on, on where um, political freedoms stand, you know, and in the NFL situation, um, I I would see it hopefully evolving, especially uh, after the next maybe uh, NFL players association negotiations. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see some of that uh, creep into that because some of these players who grew up watching, uh the Kaepernick Neal and all that, they were like, you know, that's now like three or four seasons ago. Yeah. And um so when uh when they grew up they have that same sentiment. They saw someone that they looked up to being treated that way and not allowed a voice. And I think you're gonna see eventually the league accept that role of their players to to be to be able to to stand up and to do things. And to to Neil and it's interesting because it's the rhetoric that makes the side that thinks that the kneeling is against um, the troops or in some way anti-American mm-hmm. in what's being insinuated in that T ad. So,
0: Oh, yeah, no. It, and it, it definitely goes into, like, like it's a good callback because I definitely have riffed on but not gotten really deep in, like, the intersections of American imperialism uh, where we actually get most of the stock of our troops. And I remember I posted something on Facebook that said like we all know that we don't want to give people free college because then we would lose our stock of people who can join the military. That like that's a paraphrasing, but that that's what they were saying. So and and there's a lot of that, you know. Uh, I didn't. I guess maybe America to a certain degree has always been hyper nationalist in certain parts of our country, uh, and I've always lived on the coast, so I've never really known how hyper.
1: Uh, yeah, I would almost say. For the longest, it was hyper-nationalism everywhere. And slowly but surely, you've gotten new social views as social norms have changed. Like, Mm -hmm. call back to the, you know, taboos and mores episode. Oh, yeah. You know, how they treated different cultures and people and uh, income levels, even though some of those disparities still exist. Um, Over the time created these social circles that we know as the coasts that are this mm-hmm. you know uh whereas i think if you look at like tennessee in 1832 mm-hmm. it's a bunch of like yeah america's great and then they're like you know but indians suck you know and that's like <laughs> yeah, um interesting and, and a problematic view in its own right um but yeah it's always it's always been for the flag and it's not until, you know, if you really think about it, 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 for the majority of its time, America's government was small and wasn't really as powerful as the states. There were times mm-hmm. where California and New York swung, you know, enormous influence around what was going on in America. Chicago and Illinois at one point as well. Um, but it, over time, you know, it, it became a corporation of government, you know. That that is so huge and 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 indescribable in its makeup and its power and its influence and its um ability to control lives as mm-hmm. like a standard. And so, uh, you know, hopefully um those views of those social circles that we call the coast, you know, can ha- ha- heart kind of start to uh, whatever you'd say uh, matriculate or uh, you know enter into these uh, other circles and influence culture in that way as well I mean
0: mm-hmm. I mean it's honestly the industrialized sector versus the I guess more outskirts sector has been a thing since cities have been a thing like the word uh, like I'm always in intrigued by the word heretic And heretic just used to mean somebody who didn't live in the city. But because of, like... I think that's true. You can look it up. Um, But because of the propagation of religion in cities and because the people who lived in the country didn't get the word as fast um, in order to demean them as not followers of that religion, they called them heretics. So, it's... uh, it, It is a very interesting thing how, like, you could... Kind of say that's what's happening here too, and happening in other places that have you know big cities versus the countryside, which is every like developed nation at least, um, and even in like well, in places that would be called undeveloped nations, but that that has its own sort of ickiness to it. So, so I don't know a good neutral term to say, but I'll learn one. But yeah,
1: yeah. Well, and so it, it's it just goes to show that you know, over time, those values can grow because they they weren't necessarily always present. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, I I think right now it's a lot of the hyper rhetoric and the ability. uh, I mean, we have, this is our first official Twitter president. I mean, Obama was on Twitter. And if we think about it, how many of those tweets did he double thumbs into the thing? It was probably Mm -hmm. an aide the whole time. When we we basically know Trump himself is Mm -hmm. actually physically tweeting the nation Mm -hmm. um those kind of uh capsulated kind of agenda-based message forms that we get the information in now uh is yielding these results it's yielding that T ad Mm -hmm. you know it's yield yielding build a wall yeah um and so uh we, we we have to i mean ultimately fight against that by changing hearts and minds as opposed to you know demonizing certain groups of people that we're, we're going to eventually need to win back. Like, we got to win half of... I mean, I know you're always telling me there's people who didn't enroll in <laughs> voting and they're going to suddenly appear, but I'm just saying there's uh, whole rolls of voters in, in Pennsylvania, in Minnesota, and Wisconsin that we can still get back, that we lost because of a mixed message and we lost because our candidate, for some reason, didn't really spend enough time in the Midwest. Um, so... And obviously, we're already rectifying that. I mean, I think we've we've probably seen more Midwest-based mm-hmm. political junkies this this term of candidates than we've ever seen.
0: Oh yeah, no, the Midwest is like Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg. Um, even though, like, if you want to split hairs, Bill. Uh, Joe Biden isn't really, but he represents himself like one, so and people see that in him, so Scranton functionally speaking, yeah Mr. Scranton <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, so uh, you know, and you know we'll look forward. I mean, we'll hopefully um, you know, that tea company stops doing that, and hopefully the NFL starts listening and hopefully things change so that the actual issues that you know Kaepernick's so many seasons ago now, was kneeling for get addressed. Cause ultimately that was his message You mm-hmm. know, was about brutality and about, um, you know, police encounters and just the kind of, you know, wave of violence that was occurring at that time that still occurs today. But like it was materializing in a way that was so visual for everyone in the country. And it was being Facebook streamed, mm-hmm. And it was getting delivered to us almost on the daily. It felt like at one point, Um, and, and to try and deliver that message to a public that he had a stand to, to do, um, and, and not be this somehow tool for the guy in the office now to, to divide, um, people's opinions and make them feel like somehow he's a traitor or somehow Mm -hmm. he's against, you know, the military or any organized part of this government. So, you know. I, I guess it—it's all kind of blends together. I mean, if you really think about it, like cancel culture and free, freedom of speech, left and the right—they're almost all the same issue. You know, it's this weird dynamic of everyone just like, I make can I be heard? You know, mm-hmm. and like and like so many institutions and 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 pieces of the system itself, these faceless organisms, and then the people that act in the in the. Uh, basic direction of those systems um, are what the problem is mm-hmm. you know um, people as a whole it's like just a bunch of attention seekers I mean you can see that with our love of Instagram and everything I mean, yeah. everyone just wants to be heard and seen and I want you to like the brunch I just had um, <laughs> you know
0: eggs Benny all day mimosas what's up girl
1: yo just hanging out in the Midwest <laughs> with my boo Biden <laughs> no biggie
0: but indeed, that probably should take us into the episode, episode then.
1: eighty one, eighty first. 81, 81st. It may or may not be the year I was born. I will lie and say it is.
0: Uh,
1: and uh, yeah, 81, son. Also, wh- uh, what is that? That's uh, Terrell Owens.
0: I feel oh, like. I remember uh, Terrell Owens. I
1: think he was 81. I don't know any other 81s, but uh, rock and roll. Uh, yeah, we're here in the episode. So what, uh, Chaz, is your main issue today that's been on your mind of late? I mean, there's a lot. If we did the roulette wheel where we spin it, I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously you've got impeachment, you've got Ukraine, you've got the ongoing, uh, democratic run, uh...
0: Right. So for this episode, for our segment, uh, this week in fake news, I want to go over all the updates that's going on with Trump impeachment and some of the stuff there Uh, for America is a mindfuck. I want to go over that. The fact that the SCOTUS is now back in session And there are a whole host of cases that are dealing with very progressive things and the identities of um, the LGBTQ um, immigrants. uh, And I can't remember the other ones off the top of my head, but that's really important and something to look out for to see what those decisions are going to be next June um, in order for that uh for political action is lit i want to go over some other young ladies that are doing the climate thing um also some other aspects of our environment that we might not think of and then for my own random musings i'm gonna you know get 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 a little critical about our local politics because we got a city council race coming up
1: and uh with all that so with trump what is ukraine what happened like i'm i'm confused
0: um okay like i i to be honest with you y'all i'm still having a bit of a time trying to disseminate everything because it's uh coming at us really fast but right now there seems to be uh let's see if i can overview this right so trump was on a call back in july and he was talking to president Zelensky, i believe um is his name of ukraine of ukraine and he was basically saying so like Zelensky was like yo we're gonna buy some missiles um and then trump was like cool i want y'all to buy some missiles but Could you first um, investigate uh, Joe Biden? But like it wasn't done explicitly. So anybody who's looking for like explicit pro quo isn't going to see it there. And then the argument of that is that it's sort of implicit or implied both in the stature of the presidency and the framing of uh, the thing he was asking for. And then there's some text messages that came out um, detailing that uh, one of the envoys to Ukraine was kind of thinking that was the idea, too, saying, like, yo, Zelensky can come through and meet the president. And he was talking to Rudy Giuliani, and Rudy Giuliani was trying to kind of be the liaison. And then there's someone else more recently that the White House blocked in testifying who is— a, now, oh, i think he's an ambassador to like the uae or something he's a hotel magnet of some sort he owns hotel max here in seattle with some other ones here in the pacific northwest and and there they barred and i don't know because that just came out today and i didn't take the time to read up on the specifics of that so that's something that's there so overall like the impeachment so, there was the one hearsay um, whistleblower, but there's also a new whistleblower that I don't know much about that it has first-hand accounts of what was said in the in that phone call.
1: This all sounds like an SNL sketch. Like, it literally, like, the fact that it's, fo- I mean, it's text messages, phone call, hey, I'm huge, you, I'm the best. Hey, you should look into this other guy who's not the best who really wants my job. I got to go. Uh, you know, it's like it's it's like you can't write this shit, you know? No.
0: And it- then
1: obviously, I mean, I get him moving to like use whatever executive power he has to try and like block witnesses and testimony so that, you know, we never even see this, you know, cuz mm-hmm. th- that's going to be the difference is if if we ever actually saw what was going on or heard the the reality. So, Um, that's interesting. I mean, if that's going to be the basis, I feel like that's like a losing battle for the impeachment, personally. Because, I mean, that sounds like there's a lot of, um, kind of holes as far as selling that to the American people. But, I mean, I get it for people who have already kind of, like, weighed in on all the shit he's done and just Mm -hmm. be like, why do we even need more? Uh, but I'm saying it feels like that's like the linchpin of their impeachment argument. I don't know... If that's going to be enough, if it sounds like there's a lot of um, either innuendo or like not like direct speak of things,
0: well, yeah, we've talked about this before because that's what
1: got Nixon
0: right. But see, see, here's tapes. the thing, right? Like, I people, I don't believe are impeaching him to get him out of office okay. because the Senate isn't going to go to trial, like the Senate. Isn't, so
1: what do, are we doing it because they did it to us or in the nineties? No,
0: we- no, 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 no. Trump is doing some bold ass bullshit. He needs to get impeached. In the whole point that he needs an an impeachment investigation to do a deep dive in the bullshit he's doing. Okay, right. Like let's not pretend like Trump ain't doing some bullshit. But he's
1: not going to get removed.
0: Right. Exactly. Okay. Like this is more of an informational political play to All say right. this is the bullshit he's been doing, and that's and that's what at least i think the left and democratic base wanted and why it was such a big deal for us to take back the house because okay. once we had the house the house does all the investigations Gotcha. so if we wanted the fucking receipts we needed the house right. and this is just another another thing in the line of us getting the receipts we've always wanted so the investigation is like okay i need your receipts i need your receipts i need your receipts and of course like it looks a little bit damning if it's like i want your receipts and he's like no you can't have my receipts though and when he's blocking people who's talking so it's it's definitely not supposed to get him out of office. Um, and I, at least I surmised thinking about just how divisive it was, unless we somehow took the Senate back, which was really not going to happen. But the fact that we have the House, like we can get his uh, tax records. And the other thing, too, was that the one thing I don't actually understand about this impeachment process is I thought that it was going to, once you get into impeachment um, or, like, the impeachment investigation, you want to look at everything and not like one specific thing that initiated it. Uh, because I thought the whole idea is like everyone's shitting on the Mueller report. Like, the Mueller report didn't show any collusion or anything like that, right? And then, but if you know what Mueller was saying in between the lines, he's saying, like, I can't just be like, no, here it goes. Like, y'all, the house, have to do the fucking investigation to find out the things that we found out. And because that is the place where that is supposed to happen. And that's why Mueller, when he was interviewed, didn't really try to give any credence to that because he was like, I'm a neutral party. I did the investigation. Now it's time for you to take this information and get the ball rolling. But from my current uh, looking at the coverage, I don't know where the intersection of the Mueller report is. And say, like, these Ukraine dealings is supposed to happen or where you can do more um, investigation for that. So that's what I was looking for for impeachment. So I don't know. I think I might have to dive a little bit deeper in this.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah. And, and I get that. And that, you know, OK, that makes sense. And that's going to at least deliver something into the, the, the record of what's going on. And I... Obviously, it may or may not... Depends on how long that s- setup goes, whether uh-huh. it'll actually have implications in 2020. Um, you know, I guess it'll probably uh, wait to be seen. Um, it's it's funny because uh, at one point I was watching SNL this weekend and Michael Shea was like, are we sure it's still okay to make fun of this guy? Because <laughs> it's <laughs> like... like His attempts to, like, exercise power and, like, dominion over this presidency as, like, as if it was, like, his and only his forever um, Mm -hmm. is scary to him as a comedian because he's like, oh, wait, what if he, like, decides that you can't make fun of him anymore? Yeah, no, that's... Alien Sedition Act style, like, Mm -hmm. that, like... uh, what was the one it was like the loose lips sink ships kind of thing you could turn in your neighbors for talking.
0: Oh yeah, that that I think that us, but from the twenties or thirties. Yeah,
1: yeah. So I don't know. It's just uh he's a weird guy and I hope the impeachment goes on, uh and we'll we'll see what happens. Um
0: Um yeah, I think what people were saying just uh before we close it out and come back with some more stuff later. Oh oh this is what I wanted to say. Um. After w- listening to an episode of the argument, they suggested going back and listening to the podcast Slow Burn. And Slow Burn season one goes over kind of the lead up to um, the w- well, what would have been the impeachment process um before Nixon uh actually resigned. But and but it asked the question: Would you know you were in Watergate if you were in the middle of Watergate? right and and I'm thinking like, while, we can't say the future, or you know we can predict the future, but it doesn't mean it'll come true. It could like we'll see where this goes, we'll see how far the prid the quid pro quo line goes and what people they need to interview and what strands go from that because it's like any good detective uh, story, right? You get to a person, you meet one witness, this witness says some key thing, and then you go to the next witness and then you keep following that thread until you get to what hopefully is the truth.
1: And hopefully the detectives are three twin brothers named quid pro and quo. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, so, SCOTUS. What's going on with uh, SCOTUS? Is that is that got uh, its own little segment?
0: Uh yes, because this country is a mindfuck. Because it is, it is. So nah, let me get a little time to uh, look this up because I changed this last minute because, uh, of course, I learned this morning that all of these things were happening. I'm sorry, I'm being I'm being your bad political. Uh, individual trying to take you through all this but there are definitely some um lgbtq uh discrimination um that's coming up whether it's going to talk about whether or not it's lawful to uh fire someone for their uh gender identity uh there is one that's related to um a border guard that shot um a mexican kid Uh, who was 15 across the border and whether or not they can sue for damages because of that. So, so yeah, it's a very interesting time.
1: And that's just the, what's on the calendar now kind of like looking forward.
0: Yeah. There's a whole bunch of them. Let me, Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: And, you know, a reminder to our episodes that we've done in the past about uh, the court. It's obviously uh, leaning more conservative these days. So, uh, any case can kind of go in a direction where unexpected and, um, you know, this is where 2020 really comes into play, uh, because you start looking at Ginsburg and you start looking at these other justices and, and how long they're going to be there and w- what could happen if this court, um, continues to go in the direction it's been going the last, uh, two appointees. So, um... It's, it's interesting, the balance of government. Uh, we're going to have, you know, a, an interesting result in 2020 given whether, you know, obviously we need to grab the executive branch. But, you know, the questions start to line, is the Senate up for grabs at all? You know, is, mm-hmm. is there any um, senatorial seats that we can gain back? And actually, I mean, if we have a powerful Senate and a powerful House, we can get a lot done. Yeah, the president has a veto, but it can come back, so we can uh-huh. override the veto. So, um, you know, and then ultimately, the executive branch, because of the topics we're going to talk about now, uh, the Supreme Court has so much influence on uh, legal precedent and how cases can be tried after the fact of a landmark decision like that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, uh
0: So from my cursory look at some stuff that I heard today, so there's three cases that they're lumping all together and hearing them. There's Altitude Express Incorporated versus Zarda, Boxstock versus Clayton County, and uh, RG and GR, Harris Funeral Homes Incorporated versus EEOC, Um, and they're all about whether or not employees can legally be fired for their sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, and this whole thing, like there is that uh law that is supposed to protect you from discrimination from race, sex, religion, and all that. Right. So basically, this case is saying like the the Supreme Court is going to say, using that law, does this apply here and one of the critical things about it is um if you know about the mechanisms that uh supreme court justices use in order to delve out their interpretation of the law uh some people say there's textualism which basically says what does the text say and the text is the law therefore we should interpret the law based on what it says and then um there's also originalism, where it's supposed to say, "Well, we're supposed to go back to when it was first created, and then interpret it based on that." So there, are even that. even though there are the majority of the Supreme Court right now is made up of conservative judges, there are two judges, Gorsuch and Thomas, who are who say, at least in their writings and stuff, that they're textualists. Um, and it'll be interesting for these LGBTQ rights. Um, Whether or not they'll be textualists, knowing that if they vote based on textualism, it'll be a progressive win. And it'll kind of show whether or not the Supreme Court is um, making their decisions based on the law or if they're making decisions based on politics.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, the the court has had conservative makeups before. It's had liberal makeups. Um, It's been pretty even Uh, during the the modern era. Um, You know, it's it's an interesting reflection of an idea of uh, doling out laws from the federal side. You know, it starts to make less and less sense at times when you see the kind of different opinions of these states. But ultimately, it's kind of one of the threads of our union Mm -hmm. because we have to... It becomes the law of the land. It's kind of one of the only other than the president, things that are, are ultimately a piece of every state um, and, and can have ramifications on them. Uh, it, but it, even the states themselves, though, can interpret it because right now we have the uh, abortion laws are being...
0: Yeah, but abortion is another one that's coming down this pipe, too. And for the abortion ones, uh, from what I remember, is that there's been this 40-year thing against Roe v. Wade, and they've been doing their best to do small incremental changes at the state level. That makes it harder and harder for uh, women and uh, trans men to get uh, actual abortions. Because Now, this one that they're doing here is that I believe it's the whole doctors need a privilege in order to go in and do an abortion. And I believe it's out of Louisiana. And if it goes through... Like, right now, the... the The ruling says that you have to have doctor privileges in order to perform them, which sounds like it's a stealth law, as they kind of say, because it looks good on the surface, like it looks like it has good intentions. But the impact of it means that women effectively lose access to abortions because the people qualified to do it are at a minimum. Uh, So... Oh, yeah. And there's also, now I remember, another big one that's coming down the pipe here is um, the Affordable Care Act. And I can only paraphrase this one, but there was a part of the Affordable Care Act, which I believe was um, the mandate. And because the individual mandate was taken away, there is another case on the books that's saying, well, because the individual mandate isn't there, this makes the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. And if the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional, then you need to throw out the whole law. So Wow. Yeah. So this this is a this is a big time. I think I think while we hear more and I'm gonna keep up with it, um, I'm gonna make probably dedicate more America as a mindfuck to the nature and the potential impact that these cases would have coming in June. So so yeah.
1: Yeah, and I mean it's all dependent on twenty twenty for how much further that continues to go, so mm-hmm. whenever anyone says that your vote doesn't count or that it doesn't matter or this election doesn't matter they're all they're all the same uh, this This is where that actually does matter, and they're not all the same, and it can get to the point where uh, you know the people you love, if it isn't you directly are having troubles making decisions about their own bodies as well as um, being able to support yourself and have health care because you might be working, you know, a job that doesn't pay enough or hours that aren't enough or be in an area that's expensive to live. And in that sense, you know, uh, taking that apart, something that's actually kind of working, uh, is 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 just ridiculous, and if we have to fight the Supreme Court in order to get those things changed, then uh, we 've got to start at the top and it 's kind of one of the biggest arguments for for focusing on who 's president indeed it is the is the makeup of the future supreme Court and uh, and what that 's going to do for laws and for um, ultimately our lives right you know, and how no, we, for sure and how we 're treated and how we, we live so
0: yeah, and if they do end up throwing out the uh, Affordable Care Act, eh, at least uh, a very dark silver lining in that is that I think that gives um, uh, Medicare for All a bigger springboard for individuals to support. And that's definitely something that's coming out of the Democratic side of the debate. So, you know, uh, hopefully I want it to remain, even though it's uh, it, it can be a bit of a clusterfuck, of course. But at least it still made sure that people who were uninsured at least had something. And, uh, and the way it's going now, people having nothing, will fuck things up for a long time. So, So, yeah.
1: Well, with that, why not something trivial and mindless and athletic as my often usual segments can be Mm -hmm. uh i want to talk because we are recording this in october
0: right the only time of year where all four sports are going on at the same time
1: and one of them is best ball and best ball is in its playoffs that's right mlb major league baseball playoffs a piece of october Mm -hmm. how can you have october without it Man, we missed Mr. October, Reggie Jackson, oh. and, and, and his play. I believe he was a Dodger. I want to say he was a Dodger. Um, and, and take a peek into uh, October baseball and, you know, shed a tear for my Mariners who haven't enjoyed it since 2001. Oh, damn. That's right. If you were born the last time the Mariners were in the playoffs, you can now buy cigarettes. And I suggest you do and a lotto ticket because life is gonna be harsh for you. <laughs> um, uh, you're a Mariners fan, uh, and so uh, you know we've got several teams in the mix. Uh, the classic Yankees just did damage to the lovely Minnesota Twins. Oh, sweeping them in four games. Dang, continuing the Twins. Longest in sports playoff loss streak. Wow. 15 straight playoff losses. Damn. Yeah. So, basically, uh, Yankees move on. Uh, They were called last year the Bronx Bombers or the Baby Bombers Mm -hmm. uh, because they were hitting a lot of home runs. They did this with small ball. Uh, Good pitching defense and extra hits. And, uh, and the Twins, known this season for the most home runs in baseball season history. Wow. Uh, have have left and have gone home and, and continue their woes. I, I was th- asking myself this, as the Mariners haven't been in the playoffs now in 18 seasons. Which is worse if your team never makes the playoffs or if your team goes to the playoffs but immediately loses every time?
0: Uh, I guess they're both equally at, like. Mm, I mean, this is coming from someone who like does not get invested in sports whatsoever. Uh, so I, l- yeah, and I mean, I get it. I think I would, based on if you're the person who wants to see your team win and wants to see them go as far as they can, go into the playoffs it's and then losing. It's- it
1: is. And that's the answer. The answer is that, because mm-hmm. it changes the game. There's there's photo opportunities now. You get a patch when oh, you shit. make the playoffs. You wow. get prime time. You're one of the only games of the night. You get mm. exposure for your club, uh, hopefully your stadium, if you play some home games. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, it's, it is a good thing, and that is the actual answer. So congratulations, twins, on making <laughs> another postseason. And, you know, there's always next year. And that's from your friends at the Mariners. Uh, (laughs) Cardinals are also a perennial team. They're playing uh, the Atlanta Braves. Oh, okay. Formerly the Ted Turner product. I feel like the team that when I wasn't watching the Mariners, I saw the most growing up. Because in the 90s, all those uh, Atlanta Braves games were uh, on TBS and TNT. Mm -hmm. Like all the time. So... You'd catch them, and then I'd also catch some Kelp games on the WGN. Oh, okay, yeah, which was uh, a thing. Uh, your your Nationals, which you know, going back uh, a few years, was The Washington Nationals. Was yes, was the uh, Montreal Expos at one oh. point, and somewhere around two thousand two, they moved to our city's cap or nation's capital, home of the Supreme Court. Callback. <laughs> uh, they're two and two with the Dodgers. Who were kind of the overall favorites? They've kind of they were kind of the perennial NL favorite lately, so uh, they're having to play in the National Capitals. Uh, the Rays uh, are one game away uh, from uh, going on into against the Astros, who are also kind of going into it one of the favored teams. So October baseball here's what it's got that the rest of the season doesn't get you get these really – it's cold, man. Yeah. So you're getting these cold games. You're, like, seeing the breath in the air. There's, like, a louder crack of the bat in the cold air. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's physically or scientifically accurate, but there's something about a crack of a bat in cold, crisp air that's just, like, it, it's distinguished. Like, you know what it means. And, like – and and it just seems like moments in baseball – in October, um, last a lifetime. Like, mm-hmm. like, like the next pitch is going to matter or this base stealing or this last minute base hit that gets your, your runner to second base for the tying run, you know, that's, that's really emotional and great. I love the fact that it's this longer series mm-hmm. similar to, uh, to basketball by going to the other location, separating the, the, the scenery, you know, the setting as it were, um, in watching the traditions of these home crowds some of which are you know borderline in 2019 you know there might be a lot of tomahawk cheers in the mlb <laughs> perhaps a couple of teams so <laughs> uh, oh, uh uh you know <laughs> oh fuck <laughs> <laughs> don't cancel baseball listen Uncle Mikel's here to tell you baseball's No,
0: difficult. only baseball fans can cancel baseball and I don't think the hegemony is ready for that yet.
1: Yeah. Uh but yeah, so October baseball, the 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 emotion, the the dedication like you're saying, they've de- I mean, the longest season in in professional sports. 182 game season. You know, yeah. you've played a lot of baseball and now you've got to play your most important baseball. Like uh, it's intense, and uh, you know, throwback because you know it's been it's been going for a long time. There's a, and and the original nerd sport, the original statistics, like mm-hmm. like before there was fantasy anything, there was fantasy baseball.
0: Mm, oh yeah, because yeah. you
1: had all those statistics to use. And and shout out to you, fantasy football players. I I think it's ridiculous. That people spend so much time on like this individuals and and making the, it's there's no there's nothing about sports in that because sports are about these certain teams you know it's not a team that, anyway mm-hmm. I'm I'm uh, it baseball <laughs> yeah you might there's a chance some of you didn't hear what oh we're laughing my at God. <laughs> more than likely you didn't but it was pretty funny <laughs> let me tell you but oh lordy we uh we were just having a good laugh about baseball
0: indeed uh, and also that fantasy football is kind of fucking ridiculous
1: fantasy football is absolutely ridiculous like I, I i i don't get it i i've recently i'm like people are more into fantasy football than they are into watching football which fine i guess it works like it, it's fine I mean, we're all playing Pokemon Go and bumping into each other. I don't know what's (laughs) happening anymore. Mario Kart just came out. Did you get the new Mario Kart?
0: Oh, on a cell phone? No, I don't do cell phone games that often.
1: Oh, okay. Well, they're out there. People are downloading them. I recently heard a podcast that was talking about Zuma on the uh, mm. LG Envy flip phones.
0: Interesting,
1: and that felt that felt good to listen to because I remember that. I remember when cell phone games were like such a novelty, like it meant you had a high end phone. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously Snake throwback, but oh like, yes, Nokia outs- outside <laughs> of Snake, <inaudible> it was. Uh, it was definitely uh, uh, like the flip phone colors. That's when you ended up getting the the good the good games. Uh that being said, October baseball guys, stay tuned. Uh at the end of the month we'll have the World Series and uh and it'll be it'll be great. Um Yeah, go go Mariners next season and uh hopefully I'll be able to talk about them in October. Yeah. Uh and yeah, Shout out to the old conversation about Halloween costumes. Have you decided any, on your official? How are you going as Pepper?
0: I'm probably going as Pepper if I don't somehow make some effort to be the great Saiyan that I've always wanted to be. But that might be more effort than I'm willing to put in right now.
1: I think I'm going as astronaut.
0: Oh, nice. I like
1: it because I can go as a private astronaut now. Oh, I, <laughs> I can be Elon's first astronaut. There so, you go. So there you go. Or, you know, a zombie astronaut, if you guys need it to be scary. Uh, That way I'm not just a guy in an astronaut costume, you know. Mm -hmm. I'm a guy who died in space, but then contracted a disease that made my dead flesh alive and somehow want to only eat brains. Um, It doesn't really add up, but... (laughs) Anyway, I digress. That's that's it for my topics. Is there anything you want to leave the people with? Before
0: I mean, we haven't even gone over the last two segments that I have planned. What are your last two segments? My last two segments. Our political action is lit. Uh, talking about Autumn Pelche and Isra Hersey. And also going into uh, the, the District 5 debates. All right. so, uh, so what,
1: what do you have from those uh, activists of the climate
0: uh, and so uh, these are two young women uh, Autumn Peltre, um has been a water advocate since age 8 um, and she found that that a lot of uh, native people in Canada weren't getting access to clean water um, and she became the chief water commissioner by the Anishinaabe Nation Um, and she has actually given a a talk at the UN about it, so I have a clip from her making this talk, so we can play a little bit of it so you can understand where she comes from.
2: It is here
1: where my activism work began. It all started by learning why my people couldn't drink the water on Ontario Indigenous lands. I was confused as Canada is not a third-world country, but here in my country, the Indigenous people live in third-world conditions. Boil water advisories are still in existence and have been for over 20 years in some communities. There are children born into a world living off bottled water, living off a certain amount to, to do everyday things. I began to research this issue and discovered it was all across Canada. Then I learned of places like Flint, Michigan in the USA. Then I learned the seriousness of having clean drinking water.
3: Then it. Was
0: so yeah uh she's advocated for that um and I, I couldn't i was trying to find some ways people could help out uh there too but i'll make sure i call back to that to see if you want to talk more about clean water like in flint michigan like in many places on uh native land in canada and i remember seeing something about um mr trudeau um had a something there but i can't remember off the top of my head but it's something to look into and then there's um ursa hersey um and she is a climate activist that she is the daughter of ilman um, ilhan omar um and she is the founder of uh, the u.s uh, youth climate Strike. Uh, she, of course, supports the Green New Deal. Um, and one of the things she comments on is that sometimes she's the only person of color in these spaces that are talking about uh, doing sort of climate activism and uh, trying to do those things. So I have a little clip from her just talking about uh, what she does and what we should be doing, too.
1: I think people with privilege uh, can do a lot to help others in the climate justice movement. First thing being Um, taking a step back stepping back doesn't mean leaving or disassociating yourself from a group it means like you letting others lead because they're fully capable of doing it themselves that's really important to use your privilege to not necessarily educate other people but give them the resources to educate themselves and also helping them get the things that they need to live a sustainable life
0: so yeah so it is good to see uh, those uh individuals those youngsters uh, i almost felt like i was about to do like that condescending old person thing like look at the youth right <laughs> but you know they doing anything they doing anything uh of course there there's a lot of places in america that can use chapters uh of the u.s youth climate strike so if you want to be a part of that head to their website which i believe is just a uh, u.s youthclimatestrike.com um and you can of course start your own chapter if your uh state doesn't have it uh so yeah i thought that was cool oh no yeah let me see i oh, know it's dot org slash get dash involved uh, so yeah, there's that. And then w- where, where my heart is for real, for real right now is local politics because I got some bones to pick with people.
1: So we live here in the Seattle area and so District 5 recently had its debates. So Chaz, what was going on and what part of Seattle is District 5, by the way?
0: No problem. So District 5 is basically... All of North Seattle, in in a sense. And very interestingly enough, we are on the cusp of uh north seattle so we get in there right right at the end of it and there's two key things um from this debate because i went to it live and then i pulled down some clips uh from the recording that they did themselves so we can riff on it a little bit um but the first one talks about affordable housing um by way of getting rid of single family zoning um, and the other one is going over our city's homelessness crisis and what their plan is in order to, you know, rectify it or, you know, give support to individuals who are currently suffering through homelessness. So let's first start with uh, talking about good old affordable housing.
1: A single family zoning leads to longer commutes because people can't afford to live close to work do you support a
3: comprehensive ban on single-family zoning similar to what Minneapolis did last year in part to reduce carbon emissions? I do not support that. Um, I think that right now what is great about Seattle uh, which what we all love is our d- distinctive neighborhoods and part of that is the n- homes and the businesses that are part of those hubs and those neighborhoods. I think the way that we get both is that we have density near our transit hubs. We keep it where people can work and as they transition through life from either maybe being single like I was, carless. I can have great mobility, I needed to live close to where I worked and could get around the city. As you start to age or you have other family members that you're caring for, it's critical that we have additional space and other options. I want to see a variety of living styles, that means we make not big places, We make make small places that are available for people that are affordable. We make different sizes. We have single-room occupancy back again so that people can have an affordable place to live where there's built-in community. And that means we also have some single-family homes as well because we have a variety of people. Therefore, we should have a variety of housing styles. And we could be green at the same time. Okay. Kendrick, what is? Um,
1: I... Well, so, yeah. And, I mean, that makes a lot of yeah, sense, think... as it was articulated, in the sense that... Uh, You know, we definitely need different organized uh, building structures as far as um, what types of homes are available to people. Uh, You know, it's not a a cookie-cutter approach. I don't want to keep seeing just these, like, five- to ten-story square built, you know, where it's all that Mm -hmm. same kind of modern square cut-out uh, architecture um, with just different offsetting colors. You know, is this building maroon and gray? Well, then this one's... Teal and silver, you know, uh it's it's you know I want to see I you know and and I would like to see a landscape where there are night like homes with yards at some of you know I, I I get that that's a premium but you know that's there's a piece of that that we want to retain if that's available you know, uh,
0: I mean I'm like fuck that shit but only because our Seattle in it of itself it has very low um. Uh, density uh tch, tch, tch.
1: so there's plenty what do you, so
0: y- so like so like there was a bit of that that seemed to cut off for some reason because uh uh what I was pulling it from seemed to crash I don't know why but right now if you look at single family zoning here in Seattle uh there's of course three types um there's 5000 square feet 7200 square feet and 9600 square feet um and within that uh People like she was talking about, uh, you can have a single room occupancy, we have that, and Seattle limits up to uh, only eight people to live in one house at a time. All right, so I get wanting to keep it, uh, but right now I'm looking at it from a numbers game. Is if like at the maximum uh, you're taking 9,600 square feet, and if you uh, you know did that three times over, how many, how big of an apartment building could you put in that space to house more people? All right, so and I also think that this is in conjunction with um, that we do have multifamily zoning as well too. And one of the big things is that a lot of our single um, single family units take up the majority of our zoning in the city. Um, And we've looked at this before uh, when I knew my place where I live right now, which is a townhome, was getting bought. I looked into it to see what our zoning was like, to see what could be put here. And in our particular zoning, because we're in a place that has multifamily zoning. And one of the things about multifamily zoning that I think does need to be a little bit more nuanced is that multifamily zoning has a bit of the ticky tacky boxy sort of places that get made um, either row homes or townhomes and row homes and townhomes look functionally the same. But, you know, they have different dimensions and how they can be built and how much space they can take up. And there's also apartments. And for those two, there's approximately like 1,600 uh, square feet versus 2,000 square feet that can be used to put those spaces in there. Uh, So I do think that like at least if we were mitigating single family homes, I would want the majority of our space to be multifamily. But I would also want our multifamily zoning to split out townhomes and row homes from apartments. And also another thing added to that um, that Deborah Juarez said that, that kind of got cut off was the fact that there would be... Um a commission that would look at making affordable housing in the city and i think that the city council needs to be able to airmark certain places in the city of course near transit hubs where they're going to specifically build public housing for people who are going to be there and stop uh, getting the corporate interests of big conglomerates creating the big ticky tacky just all luxury apartments all the time to try to handle that for us so right so yeah i think
1: that's int- I mean, that, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think both of us could be right in our statements mm-hmm. with with proper mapping. Um, I think you could retain some of this um, uh, single-family districts and homes and areas. And I think with creative, and especially with your um, staying close to the transit, I mean, that kind of, you know, there's very certain roads that are the, the best to catch buses and or... Um, Near like what's going to be light rail stations here in North Seattle, which is coming in the next year or two mm-hmm. uh, and so uh you know, I think they both can be right i I really think there's a degree um, of uh, value in a single plotted home, even if i i mean I personally live in one right now that I share with like four other people, and you know it's basically an apartment, but i mean if I was to like actually own that property. There, there's a lot you can do with it in a way that you wouldn't be able to do with an apartment. And, you know, some degree of me feels like you should be able to attain that.
0: No, I agree with that. But mm, sorry for my French, but that's what the fucking suburbs are for. <laughs> and uh, like, and that, that's basically where I'm getting that with that, is that like Seattle's a city. And uh, cities that have a certain level of density And I think in Seattle's case, because our density isn't being maximized uh, to allow for affordability of people and because those single family homes exist in other parts of our state that are close enough for commuters, uh, that I do feel like we can put less credence in having single family homes within the city limits of Seattle because those options exist outside of it.
1: I don't know about that. I don't think I don't think you want to live in a city that's only apartments. I, I don't think density makes a perfect city. I think neighborhoods have a lot to do with that and I think to some degree you have to keep some characteristics of some of these spots. I think I get I think there is value in that. Livability and 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 just you know, there's I think there's ways both could could happen. I I definitely think developers right now are um, trying to make the most out of their money, and so they're building these very expensive condos. I think you're right on that, and I think if you if you look at that angle and start to curtail that practice and make affordable housing a like linchpin piece of every next development in the city bounds, I think you can get enough to start to alter the direction of this problem so we don't feel it as such this immediate thing where we're like, no, we have to tear down every single family home. If you're in the district of Seattle, 206. If your area code's 206, tear your home down tomorrow. We're building up... You know, I, I, I think it's more nuanced than that. I think it's it's... it's a piece of the puzzle is that we're not really doing anything right now. And the problem is ultimately just getting worse. And so both sides are now arguing. I I do think we could probably redistrict some of these areas and make it multifamily and see how that district, you know, absolves that change. Does it, um, does it, you know, work well with the, the new coming light rail. And like I said, the bus routes Mm -hmm. and and commuting to their jobs and everything. And, uh, and, and if that's kind of really actually fixing those systems, and let's go for it. You know, um, I do know there's areas up here in North Seattle that it's going to be changing, obviously, with Northgate is this area that's been known for the last six years for having or 70 years for having a mall is actually uh-huh. being uh, changed into this strange kind of commercial dynamic that's partially connected to our upcoming NHL franchise.
0: Yeah. It's, let me see if I can finish playing the other part because Deborah Ward's Juarez's part got cut off. Yeah.
3: Uh, a single family zoning leads to longer commutes because people can- We make small places that are available for people that are affordable. We make different sizes. We have single room occupancy back again so that people can have an affordable place to live where there's built-in community. And that means we also have some single family homes as well because we have a variety of people, therefore we should have a variety of housing styles. And we could be green at the same time. Okay. Can you um,
2: I don't think that's a, quite a fair question. I don't think anyone wants to come out of the gate saying that they ban single family zoning housing because 75% of the city, as you know, is single family zoning. I want to go back to an issue that people aren't comfortable talking about and that's race. We have the zoning that we have because in the 50s and the 60s, people of color, people like me, Native American, Latina, and some of my brown brothers and sisters in the room weren't allowed to buy property in the north end. Um, And so what we're trying to do is right some historical wrongs. We saw the redlining not only with housing, we also see it with transportation, and that's where we see the economic racism. Take the crappiest neighborhoods and put all the transportation there, put all the environmental pollution there. So getting back to single-family zoning. So what we've tried to do, you can't grow more land, but we've done two things. In downtown, that I chair the waterfront? $700 million dollars. Four lawsuits. We grew 20 acres of land. Bitter Lake, they wanted that capped. We got the money in there. We're going to expand that so we actually grew eight acres of land. I chair parks. What we want to do is continue to expand green spaces and more opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
1: And then she got cut off by the actual timing.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: um,
1: yeah, no, I think it's a dynamic issue. I don't think there's a perfect solution. I. I. I don't, you know... I don't think just if you're pro single family homes in certain areas, you're, uh, uh, you know, only angling it as a a racial motive. I I do think we can I do think redlining was a real issue, especially in northwest cities like Portland Mm -hmm. and Seattle had um, very distinct redlining issues. And righting some of those wrongs isn't a, a bad thing. I think there should be more affordable housing in the north end. Um, I've always said, I think I've said it on this podcast, I've definitely said it in person that, you know, this adjacent original highway 99 Aurora is Mm -hmm. one of the least, uh, ambitiously or efficiently used areas of the city. Mm -hmm. You know, we've basically let it rot for like 30 blocks. And, um, you know, I want to see that and I want to see this kind of Northgate development area. I think there's space there. Um, I think there's areas that we can... Improve on and actually has not only really good access, like uh, specifically for transit and all that, but is actually like iconic areas of the city that can actually become vibrant, um, thriving areas of the city. And and I and I think that's kind of my angle is like like use the map, use the map to yeah. your advantage, you know. And 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 let's not. I think you and I would agree. Like certain areas of this this problem that's always been thing. Like don't waste the money you know, don't buy the land that you think you can charge the most at, mm-hmm. you know, what's the land that you can build at that's both livable. Cause I, I mean, as a, a poli sci guy, I've always said livability is key.
3: Mm-hmm. And I
1: think, and I think livability and including in that, you know, the diversity or the income disparities, that your city creates and working those into the framework of the algorithm is also key, mm-hmm. but ultimately building very livable. So no matter who's living there, hopefully everybody, um, it, it, it's safe. It's available to clean drinking water. Obviously it's mm-hmm. available to, uh, uh, organic or f- types of, uh, healthier a- in foods and not just these, uh, nutrition deserts that we hear about in certain areas. And and all those things coming together, and I think I think, and I I don't think there's a problem with multifamily homes. I've lived in them most of my uh-huh. adult life, you know. Um, to much success at times, to have you know, and and it, it it can create if the right size building can create a real sense of community, uh-huh. you know. Um, it, it, it it can be uh, it can be a solution in the future and and definitely I think don't waste the money and 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 save where you can without restricting our textural um, ways ways that you can kind of change the game visually because I do think where you live the setting of where you live is a big deal I think living in these cutout boxes is kind of a problem as much as it's probably the easiest way to build. I think if we get creative with building materials and, and, and our cost structure and who's getting the money and how we're spending it, uh, we, can, we can actually get a little more creative with these uh, architectural designs and especially including the nuance of like courtyards and things that are like shared community spaces. Uh-huh. And because uh, and I do think ultimately the dialogue between neighbors is a piece of the ultimate solution. You know, is creating these neighborhoods that are functional, that are helping people, that don't have to fear um, that, you know, there's, there's no economy there or it's dangerous or they can't get to work on time. Um, it, 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 if we can gil, build that and at the same time strengthen those communities so they're sharing with each other and talking to each other, we're not going to have this, like... Ignorance of, of of neighbor, where we don't know what our neighbors think. Yeah, we're pretty liberal, Seattle, but ultimately there's a lot of conservatives in this city. You know that just kind of bide their time, and I see them. I see them in line at Starbucks. Uh-huh. You know, I see them. I see them driving back to the east side. You know, I know. I know they're here. Um, you know, and I want to have open dialogue, uh, and yeah, I think yeah. I mean, it's a mixture. I definitely think, obviously. Affordable housing, what's a piece of the solution? Obviously, multifamily homes. At, to some degree, large ones. Mm-hmm. You know, that can get a lot of people uh, with, you know. I. It would be amazing if they actually did the math and saw both uh, people who are, you know, homeless or, you know, kind of home in between, if you were, and kind of got those real, like the actual hard numbers. Mm-hmm. And then what it would actually cost to house them efficiently as well as affordably as well as um with this livability quotient what would that actually cost even if it's like a trillion dollars when you do the study mm-hmm. at least put a number to it cuz i don't think it is
0: no it's not it's yeah. studies have shown that it is cheaper to house people overall than all of the money that they put all of the strain and uh cost that they put on other systems like emergencies and, and you know uh what's it called it's like shelters and everything like that which actually kind of leads into, I have one more clip about uh, Deborah Juarez and Ann davidson Slatler talking about the um, individuals dealing with homelessness in Seattle.
2: What policies should the city adopt that it's not currently using to deal with homelessness
3: and why? Candidate Davidson-Satler. I'm sorry to keep repeating myself, but I will, because I think it is time that we have this honest conversation. Imagine that, what would you want for your loved one, for your mom or dad or your brother or sister? Imagine your entire block were to become unsheltered overnight because of a natural disaster. What response would you expect? Would you expect to pitch a tent in our park? I don't think you would want that for your mom. I wouldn't want that for my mom. I would expect there to be a place that we are told where she could go, where there are toilets and showers and on-site needs assessment. We are not doing that for our unsheltered neighbors because they became unsheltered slowly. What if they became unsheltered overnight? What response would you expect? It is not a long-term solution, but we do need to be in a triage mode in this city or, so that we have people inside. We are approaching our winter for how many times? And we will have people outside yet again. It is time for action. It's been happening the entire term while she's been in office. We need a plan. I know we have to work together, but we need ideas, and my ideas are put forward, and we need to get working.
2: Candidate Morris. Well, I know one issue that people say about homelessness is it is about addiction and it is about mental health, but the bottom line, what I've seen, and Minneapolis report and everywhere else, San Francisco, Los Angeles is, we need to build more units. We need to up our housing stock and we haven't done that. We haven't done that because we have a market where we just haven't been able to get our nonprofits and our developers up and going. So that is the number one issue. That's what I was hoping when I've been working with the King County folks on the um, regional governance authority, that yes, we are dedicating that particular authority to the issues of um, emergency services, shelter, day center, outreach, health services, um, permitted encampments, I could go on and on, but for me, if I had a wish list, it would be have a laser-focused public development authority whose only job it is is to build housing, and I work with Speaker Frank Chop on that.
1: All right, well, uh, Well, who do you think in your mind won that debate
0: oh from the people who were there and davison slatler uh because definitely she and and i say this cuz in the neighborhood i've seen her signs everywhere and I don't think I've seen a single Deborah Juarez sign that's anecdotal as fuck but that's just my observation at the moment and I do think that like she is appealing to um like I feel like this this candidate um this whole slew of candidates on the Seattle Council is basically uh, the old guard versus the new guard in some ways some sort of uh, for for Seattle more like neoliberal practices versus progressive ones um and and i feel like she um, and Davidson sadler is the neoliberal candidate and i also feel deborah Juarez is a little neoliberal too but she's a little bit more progressive because she at least tries to put emphasis in the, the dealings with uh people of color and black people and and all that thing that happens in like south seattle even though that's not um her district so i do feel like i I am all for Deborah Juarez, even though like our choices are kind of shit compared to the rest of the city, right? And and we'll see how that goes. But of course, like you can go to Anne David Sattler's site to look up her plan because she wants to do like female FEMA style camps in order to get people inside and things of that nature. And people have had criticisms of that. So
1: and once again, if you live outside the Seattle area take this information and how we're analyzing and looking into our local elections in your neck of the woods indeed that's why we do it because there is a district in your area there is a council if you live in a city at least and if you live in a county somewhere that's like more rural or whatever there's definitely some type of county politics and the people that are running it uh in a very similar fashion so go out there Uh, go to the debates if they're open or the town hall meetings or listen to the recordings. If they're done and over the radio or whatever they do to get the information out to you, uh, stay informed.
0: Indeed. Of course, thank you for listening to this jam packed episode, but now I think we're ready for the value extraction portion of our podcast. So of course, Mikel, where can they find you?
1: Uh, Seatown mayor, uh, municipality helper, elected official, on the coast, that's S E A T O W N M A Y O R, on the Twitter sphere. Uh, also, uh, hit us up at H Y L B O X at gmail.com. That's H Y L B O X at gmail.com. That is our official podcast email. Hit us up. Let us know what we got right, what we got wrong, uh, and tell us about your favorite baseball team. What's going on?
0: Um, Of course, you can find me at uh, Chaz underscore Baz on uh, the Twitter, the Instagram, and on the TikTok. Of course, I'll leave you with something to grow your brain. I've been listening to the audiobook for Custom Reality in You by Peter Coffin. Uh, Just name dropping him because that's where I got the idea for the value extraction portion of uh, this media that we create. So go listen to that. It's helping me, you know, frame a little bit of like uh, the meta socioeconomic underpinnings of society that we live in and how that kind of conscripts us to act a certain way and want certain things at different stages in our life and a critique of that overall and how it deals with capitalism therein. So you might enjoy it. Yeah.
1: And final callback into the show version, uh, I mentioned the Ocean Cleanup Project in the last episode. Oh, yeah. Since the last episode, he relaunched it. It's working a little better than it did the first time. Oh, uh, New data will come out in a few months when they, they get some actual uh, data, but it is picking up plastic in the garbage patch,
0: folks. Yes, sir, y'all. So there's
1: a little bit of good news for the end of the show. Chaz, as always, this has been fun. This has been in-depth.
0: It's been groovy, baby.
1: Let's land the ship
0: we out peace
3: my How the fuck I make it to the top the same day I lost a nigga that had. I nigga perform on BT in a year ago, couldn't afford the sound. I had to move in with TG when I went broke, moving out the cash. You know about smiling it. They for all your fans act like, like you have. I spent a hundred thousand, laying my daddy the rest, but I ain't brag. I got some questions, I'ma die about respect if I don't get ass My mama stood up in the chest, took it like a G when she had cats. My brother be thinking that we don't love and let him struggle like we ain't fat Like I won't give up all I got to see you happy, nigga. We shot the world, everybody know what's happening, nigga. I'm still a John John, my song it just went platinum.